Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be holy and acceptable unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So the title of my sermon this morning is From Job to Jane, the story of God within the stories or the suffering lives of our lives. This morning, we find ourselves sitting alongside Job in Job 38, a broken man on a pile of ashes, scraping his disgusting sword with a broken piece of pottery. And in a few minutes, we will be caught up in a whirlwind tour of the cosmos with a God who speaks to Job and to us from a cyclone about the world that God created. And the question before us this morning is this, what are we to make of this? This is the question that lies before us. Some of you might remember that a few years ago, we focused on the Psalms of Lament during Lent. And we learned a few things in that series that I want to recap this morning as a kind of an inroad into the book of Job. We learned in our series on Lament how Lament fits into the story of our lives. We learned how Lament keeps us honest before God, especially in light of suffering, whether that suffering is individual or societal or collective. And we learned how Lament is an act of truth-telling. Lament is a profound expression of a people or a person's groaning for justice to their God to bring freedom and liberation. Now, since then, years have passed, and we have had many reasons to lament. We're coming out of 18 months or so or more of a year full of loss, loss of loved ones, relationships. We're aging, loss of memory or health. Some of us have lost desire and love for our spouse or partners, employment, There's a lot of pain and suffering that has occurred since the series on lament. These are the days of our lives. And like Job, we remain in a world that feels like chaos. We feel like the disciples in Jesus' boat, terrorized by the storms of life, which are just unfair, they're unjust, and sometimes just utterly meaningless. They just don't make sense. And so we try to make meaning of our lives in the world that we live in. And with the limited understanding that we have, we, like Job, we try to understand how and why suffering exists in this world that God calls good, that God has created. You know, virtually every single person in in this room and online watching this right now will experience a bitter calamity sooner or later. And you can mark it down ahead of time. It will most certainly seem absurd and meaningless to you. And I guarantee you'll probably think that it's undeserved. You know, we want to know why bad things happen to good people, to us. We want to know how evil, how suffering and pain can exist in a good world created by a good God that we believe is all good. We want to know if suffering and pain has a purpose 
And we often land somewhere between suffering does or does not have purpose. Either we believe something like this, that God allows or even causes suffering as a natural consequence of our sin, or that suffering is for the greater good, or we believe that suffering is utterly meaningless, that it has no purpose at all. While these attempts to make sense of suffering may be understandable, and they might function well at the intellectual level, the truth is is that such explanations, in reality, they don't address the relentless pain and suffering in our world. When we are suffering, or those we love are suffering, what we want is not a logical formula. We don't care about the explanation, to be honest. And in our Old Testament lesson, we find Job sitting down, surrounded by friends who spent a good amount of time trying to convince him that his suffering must be the result of God's displeasure with him. That Job had had to have done something to deserve the suffering that had come upon him. And you know what? Job certainly understands why his friends believe this. In fact, I am certain that before his life was turned upside down and he lost everything, Job most likely believed what his friends believed as well. In fact, we get a glimpse of this in the world that Job describes in chapter 29 of the book of Job, where Job was the center of his universe. He was sitting in judgment at the city gate, surrounded by family and possessions, and he was admired by all in his circle. Most likely, Job and everyone who knew him believed that his success, that his wealth, and that his health, that his prosperity were God's rewards for his righteousness. You know, the idea that God always rewards faithfulness and always punishes unfaithfulness was common in the ancient world. And my assumption is that we see echoes of that today, do we not? But what we will discover is that God's response to Job reveals that God is not some divine robot that functions according to a predetermined set of coded instructions, rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. Yes, being faithful, yes, being virtuous are certainly worthwhile in and of themselves. But hear this, they may not necessarily lead to personal gain or material success. And if you've read the gospel, the New Testament, well, you understand. Job knows this, at least now. In fact, he is convinced of this because he knows he has done nothing. He's done nothing whatsoever to deserve what he has had to endure. And deep down, he knows that what he and his friends have come to believe about God, about reward and punishment, is not true. And even if their beliefs and explanations were true, those beliefs and explanations would never provide relief to the actual loss, pain, and suffering that Job has endured. Many commentators have said that Job, without the ending, is a tragedy. I want to say to you that with the end, 
it is an utter tragedy. Yes, he is vindicated and he is restored, but he lost a wife. He lost a family. He lost everything. And I think there is wisdom in acknowledging that even in our attempts and our best explanations to make sense of suffering, they do not make suffering go away. But before we turn to the text, I want to clearly say one more thing that the book of Job resists any and all suggestions that suffering is a matter of some kind of verdict of divine justice. That is heresy. It also rejects any suggestion that those whose lives that are marked by suffering cannot be fully worthy, righteous, and favored by God. If you are suffering right now, God sees, he hears, and he loves you, and you matter in the midst of all your suffering. So Job, who is this guy? He, he's a righteous man. He was religious in every single way. He was wealthy. He was healthy. He was prosperous. But as the story goes, and maybe you've heard it time and time again, Job loses everything. And the question is, why? Why does he lose everything? When you read the text, we learn that it's because the Satan sets a test that was approved or allowed by God to see if Job's faithfulness is offered freely or for some other reason, such as Job only worships God because he's been blessed. But Job loses all, and he ends up on a heap of ashes, scraping his scaly, disgusting sores with a broken piece of pottery. Then all of a sudden, three best friends show up to comfort him by repeatedly reminding him that he's a sinner and that those who do evil deeds will always receive their just rewards from God. Hashtag BFF. (laughs) And to add fuel to the fire, these friends stick around in silence waiting for Job to die so they can remind him at his last breath, he told you so. But you know what? To everyone's surprise, Job refuses to accept the fate of his friends. That they believe God has predestined for his life, and rightly so. So he begins to cry out to God and question its justice. You see, the friends may have expected a silent death, but instead they received the protest of a man convinced that God is not what they think or he thinks. Job cannot imagine why he is where he is. That's the truth of the story, why he has had to suffer the loss of everything. And so he cries out. He cries out to God, and he does so with what I would call an untamed honesty. He asks God for an explanation in light of the injustice that he has endured. And personally, I think Job's crying out to God reveals something important to us about the relationship between suffering and God's judgment. You see, for Job and many like him throughout the Bible, in particularly the psalmists, God's judgment is good news. It's what they long for. So actually what we discover between God and suffering is is that Job views his suffering as a lack of God's judgment rather than the presence of it. And so Job cries out for justice and from the depths of his being, his cry for justice reveals there is something Something definitely amiss in this neat world of reward and punishment. 
And so in the face of injustice, he refuses to be silent. And over the course of 36 chapters, beginning in chapter 3, Job cries, he cries out. And his cries of injustice begin to rise to the heavens. And he challenges almost every presumption he and his friends had been taught to believe about the world and the God who made it. He laments. He begins by cursing the day he was born in Job chapter 3, verse 1. Through his lament, Job protests against the belief that he has to put his faith in a God who always rewards faithfulness and always punishes unfaithfulness. And again, to everyone's surprise, God not only hears, but God sees and God responds. And God responds in an unexpected way that reestablishes Job and his understanding of God in the world that God fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is where our Old Testament lesson picks up this morning. Out of a whirlwind, God answers Job. Job 38, verse 1. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. You know, one of the most interesting things about God's response to Job is that on the surface, God doesn't even acknowledge Job's suffering. God doesn't entertain Job's questions about justice. Instead, God takes Job on a tour of the cosmos beginning with the foundation of the earth and the bird, the birth of the sea. It's as if God spends a lot of time where the wild things are, describing all kinds of untamed creatures, lions and mountain goats, deer and wild donkeys and oxen and ostriches, eagles. He even mentions what was known as two prehistorical monsters, the behemoth and the leviathan, both both which represented chaos in the ancient world. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've read this story many times, and and I don't understand it. And when I reread this, I still didn't really understand it. And through the sermon team, preaching process, I began to understand it a little bit more. But I'm going to be honest, this is not the answer that Job or I expected from God. In fact, when I reread and reread and reread the book of Job in preparation for this sermon, God's response to Job left me dissatisfied. And this is why I've spent almost 20 of my years writing on mental health, disability in the church, about suffering. And I really believe that suffering makes us a stranger to ourselves and a stranger to others. You know, suffering alienates us from almost everyone, including ourselves. Because when we suffer or see those who suffer in this world, 
the natural response is to be repelled by it. We say things to ourselves like, this thing that is happening to me, it's really not me. So we become a stranger to ourselves. Or we say dumb things to people like, God chose you because he knew you could handle it. Or God's disappointment or your disappointment is God's appointment. Whether it is our own suffering or the suffering of others, suffering bothers us deeply. And these flimsy platitudes are evidence of that reality. And to be completely honest with you, it's for these reasons that I expected God's response to be somewhat comforting. So is it wrong to want God to tell Job about the wager with the Satan? Is it wrong to desire God to acknowledge Job's suffering or even to apologize for it? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that's how I feel. What are we to make of all of this? Job cries out for justice. He desires justice, and God says, how did the dumb ostrich cross the road? Super fast. Job 39, 13 through 18, if you want to read that. <laughs> this is not the answer that any of us expected from God. I see some of y'all flipping in your Bibles right now. So. <laughs> and yet God's response to Job cannot be easily dismissed. Like a powerful thunderstorm, God's response to Job is beautiful. It is fascinating. And to be honest, it's a little more than terrifying. I mean, the images and creatures described in God's response take hold of our imaginations. They introduce us to a world much bigger, much greater and grander than ourselves, than Job's self. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the wound, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I mixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Like, what kind of question is that? <laughs> or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know this. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts of water? Do you send, do they report to you that here we are? Who gives the Ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together. What are we to make of this? 
God's response to Job break, it utterly breaks open his world and expands his vision to include places and creatures that he had never imagined. You see, God paints a picture of the world that is wild and beautiful, a world that is graciously free. And for God, the world is not made for human beings. In fact, it's not entirely safe for human beings. In it are creatures that are wild and free, and God takes special delight in those creatures that are outside the boundaries of human existence, outside the control of humanity. And God gives creatures the freedom and the gracefulness to be who they are created to be, wild and beautiful. At the heart of God's response to Job is God's revelation of freedom and grace rather than reward and retribution. And in all the freedom creation is given, God also maintains that order by placing limits on those forces that would plunge the world into chaos, the sea, the Leviathan, even human wickedness. But what does all this have to do with Job's suffering, with his situation? What we see is that earlier on in his anguish, Job curses the day he was born. He says he wishes he was never, that he never existed. If you want to turn over, it's going to be on the screen in a minute, to Job 3, 1 through 10. His lament is a deep dive into despair, almost into death, I would say. And his suffering and his alienation from himself and from his friends around him and the wider society that knew him caused him great anguish. And the only words that he was able to muster were words that expressed his desire to uncreate the very world that God created. This is what he says at the beginning of three. May the day of my birth perish. The night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. You see how this parallels the creation of the world in Genesis 1? And how Job is kind of cursing and lamenting, but he's, his words are expressing like the uncreation of what God has created. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. And what does God do? In our lesson this morning, God sees. And God hears, and God comes down. Isn't that amazing in itself? When he's wondering, if God sees, do you see, do you hear, God comes down and meets with him at the very place his feet is grounded, on the floor of the earth, the floor of creation. And this is what God does in and through himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He listens, he sees, he hears, 
and God comes down for you and for I. And how does God respond? He responds in a way that gets to the heart of Job's lament. Job, be, I mean, God begins to reestablish the world that he had just cursed. That's what God is doing. He's reestablishing creation in a way that is undeniable for Job. God celebrates the beauty and the freedom of creation, the stars and the sea monsters, the lion and the raven, the antelope, even the dumb, fast ostrich, the horse and the hawk. It's as if God is insisting that there are parts of creation that are commonly experienced as monstrous and threatening, like the Leviathan. But they are precious to God. They're very close to the heart of God's redemptive purposes. What God is doing here for Job is revealing to Job that he, like the scaly Leviathan, resides in the most striking way at the center of God's concern, even in the midst of his suffering. He matters. You matter. God's revelation to Job and his friends is that they were wrong about God. Job 42, 7, God says, you were wrong about me. God has other things to attend to in the world besides rewarding and punishing human beings. And God's revelation to Job and to us in this particular text is that the universe is far bigger, far stranger, and far more mysterious than you or I can ever imagine. Yet God gives humanity in Job a singular place in creation. It's as if Job is the only passenger on this grand tour of the cosmos. And through it, God is inviting him and us this morning to see the world from God's eye point of view and to delight in its beauty and freedom as God does. So here's the question. What does, God, what does Job get? God. God, in all his holiness and creative beauty and wonder, attends to Job in a godlike way. You see, God's revelation to Job is full of purpose. And his end is not simply to display his divinity, but it's overcoming human opposition in Job's life, his heart, and the heart of his friends. It's overcoming alienation and pride and their replacement by knowledge, love, and fear of God. And God's response does something profound. It accomplishes something very profound in Job's life because it moves Job out of his endless cycle of grief back into life again. It enables him to live freely in a world of heartbreaking suffering and heart-stopping beauty and to do so in a way that reflects God's own care of the world. This is what we discover in Job. Really, that's the end of my sermon. You know, over the past few weeks, I've changed the conclusion of the sermon many, many, many times. At first, I thought I might end with highlighting how Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves in our gospel lesson is the fulfillment of God answering his own questions to Job. That's one way. 
And then I thought I'd end by highlighting the New Testament lesson in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, and its echoes of the book of Job. But then something profound happened in my life this week. I watched America's Got Talent. <laughs> and I witnessed an extremely rare and holy thing. When a 30-year-old three-time cancer survivor by the name of Jane Marcheski showed up on the world stage and taught us how to honestly, in the most untamed way, lament before God. A few days ago, she shared part of her story in a blog entitled, How to Meet God at Your Lowest Point. And it reminded me of Job. It actually reminded me of Job in many ways, but I think, in fact, Jane understands Job's story better than I do. And so I'd like to read her story as a way to conclude. I think this is the sermon. I don't really remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer, and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say, I disappointed him or somehow offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll just say, or maybe he'll say, I just learned, never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. God can never say that he did not know me. I am downstairs, neighbor. Of God. I'm banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat. I have called him a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. 
Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God. It's not the mercy that I ask for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadows, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I am sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one, I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in the hammock with him and trace the veins of his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to a God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me every morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what it is. That's the same question I'm asking. Again and again, there's mercy here, somewhere. But what is it? What is it? Manna, manna, what is it? I see mercy, I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket of my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Calls me, call me chosen, call me blessed, call me salt after all. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. It's not the mercy that I ask for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Again, thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will continue to repeat it until I do. Even on days when I'm not so sick, Sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is there on the bathroom floor somehow, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Sisters and brothers, In light of Job, from Job to James, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and all that you are and all that you have done in and through and for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, God with us. In the midst of our suffering and the world that suffers, thank you, God, 
with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come to suffer with us in and through us and for us. Lord, it is my prayer that you would reestablish our world, our worldview about you and about each other. Lord, will you equip your church to be compassionate, charitable, lovers of mercy and justice. Lord, attend the ears of our hearts to your word. Work in and through us as we seek to be light and revelation, as we seek to be manna for this world. What is it that you would have for us this morning? Inspire us, encourage us, lead us, direct us, and guide us in the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this prayer in your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.